0: Welcome to the markets edition of Slate Money. We don't talk about markets nearly enough on Slate Money. This is Slate Money. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Hi. And we have Long Island's finest on the show this week.
1: <laughs> uh, Josh Brown, welcome to the show. You can't say I'm Long Island's finest. Ray Dalio is also from Long Island. <laughs> So is Scaramucci. Um, you you, oh, you can't. Mooch.
0: We've never. We've never had the show. You can't on call show. me the
1: finest. But yeah. So Long Island's fourth finest, <laughs> Josh, Josh Brown. I'll take it. Uh,
0: who are you? Introduce yourself.
1: I'm a financial advisor based in uh, New York, and I write a popular blog. You have 556 followers
0: on Mastodon. So <laughs> follow follow Josh Brown on on Mastodon to get his follow up follow count count up there. Um, yeah, Josh and I go way back. Josh is is an OG finance blogger and also a financial advisor. And so we are going to take this opportunity at the end of a very down year in both the stock market and the bond market to take stock of where we're at, what just happened, what it means, um, interest rates, recessions, how to invest, how financial advisors think about investing, and much, much more. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, Josh, welcome. I have so many things I want to ask you, but mainly this is my excuse to talk about markets once a year because this is a money show and we go out of our way for reasons I don't entirely understand not to talk about markets because I always think that you know, on a week-to-week basis what happens in the markets doesn't really matter very much. And since we record weekly, um, we wind up never talking about them, but they are important. So now we get you on. As a markets person, and it has been a really quite astonishing year. We had a genuine, honest to goodness,
1: bear market. Yeah. I would say markets have never been more important because we made a decision sometime in the eighties or nineties that we were going to have American retirement revolve around a 401k and the the, the pension system went into decline, and it took decades. But at this point, most of the wealth that's not in houses or real estate for everyone in America revolves around what the stock market does from one week to the next. And it shouldn't matter, but it does matter because I think it affects the way people make decisions about spending and how wealthy they feel or how poor they feel. There's a thing with people like the stock market is not the economy. I think that used to be true. I don't think that's true anymore. I think the stock market is the economy on steroids. So every so often, and indeed on the very day that we are recording this, I
0: have been seeing the kind of headlines that I I really, really hate, which is, you know, stocks fell on worries about a recession or recession fears or something like that. Um, If you say that the stock market is the economy on steroids, are you basically saying that, you know, given that the stock market went down in early 2022, there was some kind of a recession or that it was predicting a recession or that it was like, what is the
1: connection there? So there was a guy who used to manage money, he's retired now, Ralph Wanger, and he came up with what I consider to be the absolute best explanation for the connection between stocks and the economy. And the way that he explained it, and this was 20 years ago, he said, imagine a woman walking a dog, Across Central Park, and you would see the dog run up to a tree, chase a squirrel, barking back and forth. Just the the uh, the amount of activity of this dog on the leash would be um, would be notable. Um, but then you take a look at the woman walking the dog, and the woman is just walking her straight path, not really deviating all that much. Every once in a while, walking around a tree or stepping over a puddle, the the dog is the stock market the woman is the economy. They both end up in the same place, but the path they take to get there looks very different. And I haven't heard a better metaphor um, for, for that connection. So the way to think about, the way to answer your question would be in, on January 3rd, 2022, the first trading day of the year was the peak for stocks. We never, we never traded higher. And it was really almost a waterfall straight down with a handful of, of corrective rallies along the way. But every rally led to lower lows. And the economy, uh, what you would keep hearing is, well, the consumer is strong, the consumer is strong, the consumer is strong. The consumer's on fumes. And the economy now is starting to deteriorate and match what the stock market had been indicating it would do since the start of the year so it, it it took a while but now the economic data is starting to reflect what stocks had already been presaging
0: um and before i forget i just want to ask you about this co- concept that you brought up about 401k plans and how um the stock market is incredibly important to the country to the country because um it's it's where people keep their retirement wealth um So clearly, if I am a retired person and I need to sell a bunch of stocks to pay my rent, then I want stocks to be expensive so that I get the maximum amount of money and I need to sell the fewest number of stocks in order to pay my rent. Conversely, if I'm a working person and I'm contributing to my 401k, what do I want the stock market to do? Do I want it to go down so that the stocks are? cheaper and I can load up while I'm working so that I have more stocks when I'm retired?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. In the fourth quarter of 2021, the total amount of money in retirement accounts was about $40 trillion. And most of that is stocks. And if you are at the upper end, so the average American has $121,000 in a 401k. So that's average. So there are a lot of million-dollar 401k accounts out there, but those belong to people who are already in their 60s and are facing, uh, are, are are facing A, retirement, and B, you can't just leave the money in there. You actually have to take it out. So that's what's so interesting about what I do. I I'm on CNBC, and I'm talking to mostly retired people or people close to retirement. That's a lot of the audience. The wealthier you are, the more likely it is you're an older person. But then when I'm talking about the markets on YouTube or on Instagram, that audience is in its 20s and 30s. They don't both want the same thing. They just don't know it. So when you see a breathless report that the Dow Jones is down 800 points on the day and X amount of trillions of dollars have been wiped out and prices are down, that's, that's bad news if you're living on that money currently. It's great news if you're a forced saver for the next 30 or 40 years. And so if, if you're 25 years old, I don't know why you would be rooting for all-time highs in the market. Makes absolutely no sense. What, how is that good? You're buying your parents' portfolio from them every two weeks when you get a paycheck. So that distinction, I think, is lost in the – most of the mainstream media uh, was created and grew up with the boomers, including television, including newspapers – so for them, down markets are terrible. But the millennials are 73 million people. <laughs> They're all forced savers. They have no choice but to buy stocks. There is no other retirement plan. So when you see markets down big, one of the things I think uh, to keep in mind is this is actually great news for tens and tens and tens of millions of people. They just don't know it yet.
2: I think there's probably a just psychology to feeling like you have this money in a 401k account and you see the number go down and it's upsetting. Like no one's thinking, Ooh, a sale. Like of course. I feel like Felix is out there saying like, I can't believe people are upset about this. And it's like, uh, Felix, yes, people, of course, people are upset about this M- number go up, number go back down, <laughs> upset.
1: Emily, you're so right. I had a client in 2007 when I was a much younger, more handsome version of myself and he was a sous chef for jean George, and he was working like 80-hour weeks. And he was just like, you know, this is my portfolio. It's I think it was $500,000 or whatever, uh, which is a lot for, for someone in that industry. And he basically said, look, I'm giving this to you. We're going to buy mutual funds, whatever we're going to do. But I just want to remind you, look, look me in my eyes. And this guy was in, at the time in his late 30s. He said, I just want to remind you. I earned every one of these dollars on my feet at two o'clock in the morning, scrubbing a kitchen or at 5 a.m. on a loading dock meeting the vegetable guy. Uh, I cut my fingers. I burned my hands. I singed my eyebrows. I just want you to understand before you put this money at risk, that's the way that I earned it. Not sitting behind a desk, not talking on the phone. And it really, and now of course it was 2007. So no matter what I bought them, A year later, he was like, I told you how I earned that money. (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) uh, Long story short, not a client (laughs) anymore. And so my comment was, okay, but you're not finished Mm -hmm. earning money. And the new money that you're going to put into the market now in 08, in 09, in 2010, with prices depressed, like this is going to be some of the best investments you've ever made. It's just going to take a while for you to feel Mm -hmm. that way. And of course, that argument is lost on somebody because – You've traded your hours for that money and you've given up freedom and you've sacrificed and you've you've now seen those hours vanish on a spreadsheet or on a computer screen. And no matter what, even though it's good because you're young and you're going to keep investing, it still feels like shit and there's no way around that.
3: Don't you think some of this is just loss aversion bias where people believe losses have you know more of an outsized effect than – Identical
1: gains yeah, that's Kahneman, and it is absolutely true both in the academic work that is out there, but it's it's very true in real life. People feel the effect of a loss at a at a multiple uh, to which they they feel the effect of a gain. Um, the other thing that's interesting, and I'm a financial intermediary, so I have to answer for things that are outside of my control, uh, which is fine. I get paid to do it, but um, people when, when the market goes up and clients make money they don't call their hedge fund manager or their financial advisor and say, "Wow, you did it." <laughs> they say uh, they say of 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 course I made money. I I I should have made money. I invested. Um but when the market goes down, a lot of what people really want out of the person who's taking care of their money is just somebody to vent at or not to blame, but to feel like they're not alone in that loss and to to hear soothing things about why this is not the end of the road it's just a bump along the road so there's a lot of psychology that goes into how we deal with what stocks are going to do and of course stocks can can and will do anything that they want
0: so i really wanted to talk to you about this um as a as a financial advisor um basically what's your attitude to down markets and uh and and what does a good financial advisor do in a down market versus i guess what would a bad financial advisor do. Is is your job really to sort of babysit people and say you're in this for a long for the long term, stick to the strategy, stay put and and be like that calming influence or or is there a case to be made that a good financial advisor will be like, wait, no, stocks are going to go down. We should position ourselves defensively and make sure that we lose as little money as possible.
1: Yeah. So there's a whole spectrum of belief systems Ranging from I will get you out of the way before there's a, a crash <laughs> to I will do absolutely nothing except put your money in a Vanguard index and if you ever touch it, you're wrong and I'm right. The, and <laughs> and you know, you see and you see those schools of thought do ideological battle on Twitter, on on FinTwit all day. Um, because that's those are the two ends of the spectrum. I think most financial advisors fall somewhere in between, but they are closer to the end of the spectrum of doing less, not more. There's a few reasons for that. The first, uh, as fiduciaries, we actually are not only responsible for the risk and returns, but for the tax consequences. So our clients cannot eat pre-tax returns. So when we're out there buying and selling, the the, the fastest way to add insult to injury is to have a client in a down market who also has a tax bill uh, because of all the trading that you've done, and so you'll you'll infrequently see financial advisors position themselves as I'm going to be out there, you know, um, making moves for you. That being said, most financial advisors are not completely passive, are are not completely stoic, and they will employ certain strategies. We call them tactical strategies that are designed. I love that risk. tactical
0: strategy. That's glorious. That's it's, right. like, it's like it's like you get both at once. It's, it's, awesome. like, <laughs> it's a strategy and it's a tactic.
1: Well, it's like having cargo pants <laughs> with a, a suit jacket. <laughs> <laughs> you put on your tactical pants with pockets from the, the ankle to the hip, and uh, so here's a, here's a version of tactical. This is what we're doing internally. We have a we have a sleeve of a, of a client's portfolio. Often it's between ten and twenty percent of the total portfolio. So it's not most of what we're doing but it is a behavioral hedge. We're using uh, long-term moving averages. We're looking at monthly closing, not daily. We're trying not to be whipsawed. And the idea is that when the market goes into a statistical downtrend, which the NASDAQ did at the end of February and the S&P 500 did at the end of April, we are using ETFs to limit the exposure to stocks and raise the exposure to cash or to short-term fixed income.
0: And you and you and you short those or what do you do with them?
1: No, no short. The idea is you're long when the market is in an uptrend or in no trend and you are trying to be out and in a short-term bond ETF when you're in a downtrend.
0: So you just you you just sell them. You sell you sell the S&P 500 ETF and you buy like a bond ETF which is considered safer and then you discover that you are long bonds in what turns out to have been literally, when we should talk about this,
1: the worst market for bonds ever. That's exactly right. This is what made 2022 maybe uh, one of the worst years of all time for a financial advisor. The idea behind owning bonds in a long-term portfolio is not that you're gonna make a lot of money in the bonds. That's not the point. The point is that they are going to provide stability so that when the stock portion of the portfolio is getting whipped around, or, or crashing, uh, as we saw in the first quarter of this year, the bonds are meant to be stable relative to stocks, there, thereby offsetting some of that volatility and providing some income. In, in January of this year, bonds provided no income and were as volatile as stocks. In fact, it is the worst first six months for a 10-year treasury since 1788. And that is before <laughs> we were even calling them treasury bonds. So- It really was a gut punch for people who uh, were building portfolios that were mostly stocks, some bonds, balance out the volatility. There was literally nowhere to hide this year.
0: But the good news is that for anyone who lived through 1788, they're like, oh, I've seen this already. I'm cool with
1: this. (laughs) That's right. Uh, You you know – what's what's really what's what's really the right way to think of if you're if you're listening to this right now and you have a 401k and you have stock market exposure and bond market exposure you've got funds that own both asset classes here's how i want you to think about this this time last year december 2021 the us stock market was trading at 23 times earnings which is historically a very high valuation and the bond market had effectively zero yield so you were you were you were not being paid for any reason. The only reason you owned bonds was for their perceived stability. Fast forward one year to today, the US stock market is now selling at a 15 or 16 multiple, meaning you're buying stocks 30% cheaper than you were a year ago. And taking almost no risk, you can own short-term treasury bonds that are paying you four and a half percent. That is a much better starting point for the next $100 that you're putting into that uh, retirement account than we had a year ago. How did we get there? We took a lot of pain on the way. But ostensibly, you're not going to stop investing anytime soon. You're going to be putting uh, money in from your paycheck every two weeks. Maybe you're funding an IRA. At this moment, you are getting a way better deal than you were getting last year. uh, Because the only thing that matters is not what already happened, but prospective Returns the new money you're putting in will be treated better because valuations are lower and yields are higher.
2: So, should we just briefly mention why stocks did what they did and why bonds did what they did this year? I mean, I think the one-word answer is
1: I blame Elon Musk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, no, but this this is this is something we we have talked a little bit about on the show, but it's definitely worth reiterating: is that everything is interest rates. And bonds have a very simple mathematical relationship to interest rates. Um, But stocks also are basically, on some level, the present value of future cash flows, future dividends, future income streams. And you discount those future cash flows using some interest rate. And in general, when interest rates go up, the present value of anything goes down. That's That's just simple bond math, which is also stock math and we had basically 15 years or well, 14 years of zero interest rates they they got cut to zero at the end of quite early in the financial crisis in 2008 and then stayed there ever since And we had the Fed not only keeping interest rates at zero, but also doing this thing called forward guidance where they were like, we promise to keep interest rates at zero for years and years to come. So please just get used to this idea of zero interest rates in perpetuity. And then people did. (laughs) And then people did. And so all of those discount rates came up, came down, all of those bond prices went up and now we have reverted to something more historically normal interest rates look like they normally do and not during not like they did during the weird zero interest rate era of 2008 to 2022 and and like, is this the point, Josh, at which you sort of breathe a sigh of relief and say, Thank Christ things are back to normal and I understand the markets again because there was that
1: fourteen year period where they made no sense? Okay, let's get something straight. I never breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> I this this year I stopped putting Splendid in my coffee. I switched it out for Xanax. <laughs> I uh I uh, this is, look, I know financial advisor is supposed to put on a tie and pretend that, you know, all is all is well, everything. I, I think by going the other way and by explaining to clients that without a doubt, if you're going to be with me for the next 30, 40 years, you're going to see a bear market every five years and one out of three of those is going to be 30% or more. I think just just having that sense of realism is more important. And it might turn some investors off. They're looking for somebody who says, we're only going to make money. We're never going to lose money. Um, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm at a place where I just refuse to do that. So uh, we bake these things in, Felix, to our expectations when we build financial plans. Before we will ever invest money, and this is most financial advisors, before a financial advisor will invest a client's money, there has to be a financial planning process where we figure out what is the money even for? When are you gonna use it? Why are you gonna use it? what kind of, What's your tax situation? What do we think inflation will be? Um, what what are the variables that might change between now and when you, you are using the money? You have a kid you think is going to Princeton. Wait a minute, maybe they're not. You have a business you think you're going to be owning. Wait a minute, you just gotta bid for it. So there are so many things that could happen that you you really can't predict, but you can just build assumptions that there will be change. That's the first thing. I wanna go back to what you said about everything is interest rates. You have no idea how right you are, and it's a lesson that a lot of us um, relearned, because we all know this, but this year we we got a, a really great refresher course. Interest rates affect the stock market in three ways. The first way, and the most obvious way, is they affect underlying businesses. If a company can borrow at zero percent, they're going to do a lot of stupid shit with the money. They're going to make huge acquisitions, pay sky high prices. They're going to do a lot of R and D. That's a dead end. They're going to have they're going to have the inclination to change the whole name of a company to Meta. And uh, <laughs> like like companies are going to do outrageous things if the cost of money is zero. And if the cost of money is zero for twelve years, it, it's going to become almost a, a, a cartoon. And that's exactly what we've seen. Investors are going to behave the same way. They're going to invest in things where there's absolutely no chance of profits anytime soon and be perfectly okay with that. They're going to buy coins. They're going to speculate in digital art. So we, we, we went through all that. So when that changes, the behavior changes. When that changes and the dumb behavior ends, that's good, right? It's not fun to live through, but yes.
3: There's also, you know, there are people in the tech sector who would argue that all of the doing stupid shit with cheap money is conducive to innovation. Do you think that that's false?
0: Well, I mean, Dan Gross famously wrote the book, Pop, right, about how bubbles are good. But, but like, it's really hard right now to see what the long-term productive investment, you know, from all of those hundreds of billions of dollars of venture capital money wound up with like if you just light a bunch of money on fire and call it we work like how how does that help anyone in the long term
2: i think at the beginning of the low rate time back in like 2010 2011 when a lot of these uh companies that we now think of household names were just getting started like uber airbnb et cetera. There was a lot of innovation back then when it was sort of still a downturn, but rates were low. And then things just lasted. It lasted too long, the low rates. A lot of people thought they were geniuses, but the genius was just 0%. That was it.
1: I think that's very close to the truth, Emily. Close. The one caveat I would throw in there is like, when you look back and you say, well, wasn't there something good that came out of these bubbles? Yeah, of course. Uh, We probably probably advanced in things like cloud computing Mm -hmm. faster than we would have because of inflated valuations for tech stocks, which enabled them to pay a lot of people a lot of money to stand this stuff up um, relatively quickly. And I would argue that's like a that's like a great thing. We are recording this show right now, thanks to the benefit of the cloud being as useful as, as it is. It's probably the thing that saved us from civil war during the pandemic, quite frankly. Um, have, having like two thirds of workers be able to do their jobs as opposed to one third, it probably made a big difference for for, for society. Um, and, and maybe that's why we didn't all kill each other. So I would argue that you do get good things out of bubbles, but you get good things also when people are going through hardship and they need to in- innovate their way out of it. And that is the Uber, Uber example, Airbnb. These things were created during the great uh, financial crisis and subsequent recession. And I I, I agree with what you're saying where it's been a while since there was an innovation that didn't look completely ridiculous. Yeah. But I want to go back to the interest rate thing and just button it up. The second way that interest rates affect stock prices is valuation. Every allocator, myself included, every pension, every insurance company, they have a pile of cash. They have cash flows coming in. They have to put it somewhere. It can't sit in cash forever, especially if inflation is seven and a half percent. So so it's not, should I invest? The only question is, what do I invest in? When rates go up, all of a sudden, high-yielding short-term bonds, treasury bonds that are risk-free become a viable alternative to stocks. That's why the valuations of stocks decline. So now all of a sudden, my next investment dollar, if I can buy a, a two-year treasury at 4.5%, and I'm good with that return, It makes it harder to convince me why I have to pay 30 times earnings for a semiconductor stock that could have double the volatility of of the stock market. And then the third way is sentiment. And this is maybe the most important way. There are companies that can, for the next 10 years, uh, grow earnings by 10 or 15% a year. That's a great company that's able to do that. The variability is what investors will be willing to pay for that stock. So higher rates typically will bring about uh, a willingness to pay a lower multiple for stocks. We know that. And so we went into this storm at a relatively high valuation. So in those three ways, we've seen interest rates assert themselves um, on the stock market. And it has been so rapid and so profound, the speed with which sentiment changed, valuation changed. It's just unbelievable how quickly we all got to relearn how important interest rates are.
4: price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: Um, I want to move on to a question which is very near and dear to my heart um, as a financial journalist, which is, what is the point of financial journalism? At least from your point of view, um, I see a lot of investors and I'm going to say probably more investors on the like end user sort of individual investor side than on the institutional side. Um you don't see this so much in big pension funds or endowments, but I see a lot of individual investors uh thinking to themselves that it's quite important to read the newspaper, to care about the news, to care about the market, to be aware of what's going on. Um and to you know to read the business section basically. Um, uh, is there any truth in that? Are you
1: asking, should anyone read the news?
2: Are you, are you asking Joss to tell us we're useless? Like, what is this, Felix?
1: Should Felix have a job? <laughs> what, is, is, it, is it useful for an investor to be informed about what's going on in the world? So, because this is, this is a podcast, I'm going to start with, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> 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 the, first is, the first is, if you work in the industry... The news is indispensable because when you sit down at the steakhouse, which I often do, (laughs) or you're meeting with colleagues, or you're in an elevator with somebody you sort of know, but they work at the bank with you, or you sit with a client, that's the opening 10 or 15 minutes of, hey, did you read this? Did you hear that? So you have to, you can't be somebody that says, I have no idea what's going on. Like that's, so that's industry. Okay.
0: Yeah, no, you have, you have to answer questions. And I remember I had lunch once with a legendary money manager, um, by the name of Ken Fisher, who I'm sure, you know, um, and, and he explained to me that like one of like, basically he's in the sales and marketing business. Um, you know, he just needs to persuade people to give him their money. And one of the marketing things that he does is he does, um, you know, meetings with one or 20 or 200 people who come along to, to a meeting with various grandees from his shop, and they ask questions, and then the grandees answer the questions. And he was like, it doesn't matter what is going on in the world or what is going on in the markets, 90% of those questions are always going to be something of the form of, I just read this in the paper, what does that mean for my portfolio?
1: Yeah. So now, but take it a step further. There's a difference between reading the news, being aware of it, and thinking that it's something that you need to act on. And so like our shtick, we're doing 10 blogs a day. We're doing podcasts. We're communicating with the investment public constantly. But the main thing that we try to get across is you should have context so that when you come into contact with an article in the Wall Street Journal, you have the bigger picture of, okay, such and such event is taking place the Fed is meeting, the CPI report is out, the jobless claims went up, the jobless claims went down, blah, blah, blah. Okay, historically, here's what that has done for a stock portfolio, against the stock portfolio. Here's what that has meant for the economy, et cetera. So that is the way we think about the news. We are voracious consumers of Barron's, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, um, all of the blogs. We, I think, are very on top of what's going on, but I think we do a really good job of explaining to clients most of this stuff is not actionable and if you're reading about it in the paper the price has already moved
0: um you, you used a word there which is one of my like words that I love to hate more than anything else which is actionable but no i want to ask like you know there's definitely a corner of the financial media which advertises itself as providing actionable information um have you ever seen this rare and special animal in the wild? Have you ever seen like a bit of financial media that purported to be actionable, and then you thought to yourself,
1: that's actionable, and then you took action and made money as a result? Well, not necessarily, but I think I think when something is considered to be actionable, what you're saying is that this news that's coming out is going to have an impact in the stock price that I can take advantage of in one way or the other. So I'll give you an example an analyst report every morning on Wall Street there are there isn't there are thousands of analysts covering thousands of stocks and they have various comments to be made about the stocks they cover sometimes they have a piece of information that makes them feel more bullish on a stock so they'll raise their price target or they'll raise their rating they'll say this was a buy now it's a super strong buy and that is actionable if you are somebody that takes advantage of shorter term uh, stock price moves in the market. If you're a hedge fund, if you're a day trader, if you're a swing trader, that is the definition of actionable. Now the action you take may not be in the direction of the news. So meaning you might have an analyst come out and say, I hate Tesla and cut their price target and the stock declines and it's actionable to you because you disagree. And so you will take advantage of that decline in the stock and buy it. So actionable can mean a lot of things, but I think the more you hear actionable, the more that is being geared toward people with a shorter term time horizon and what they're doing.
3: So when your clients ask you what they should be looking at in terms of financial news, what do
1: you tell them? I don't think that it's our place to tell them specifically what to read, but I think we do a lot of curation and I think we end up being sort of a filter through which they are getting their news. And so we're linking to a lot of stories that we're reading.
2: So for you, um, having all this content, these blogs, everything you guys do, it, it's sort of a way, like you said, to earn trust, to market your firm. Is that how you're thinking about financial journalism's utility from a business perspective?
1: Yeah. So we started blogging before they called them blogs. And, you know, we, the, the idea wasn't let's write a blog and build a financial advisory firm. That's just what happened. So uh, as opposed to playing golf, or pretending to be involved with charities, or going to regattas, (laughs) or helping people evade taxes in Switzerland, we have chosen to build a firm that is populated by clients who started out as fans. And it's a very powerful way to build a business from my perspective, because I spent 10 years doing the opposite, cold calling as a retail broker. And I'll tell you that this is more fun than that. So how do you build a fan base? Well, you you tell them the truth, you uh i think over time you earn trust by not uh varnishing things and just saying the economy's bad and here's why um i think the other thing that you do is you you be yourself and the authenticity may not appeal to everyone there'll be people who want the illusion they want the three piece suit uh etc but i think for our fans they've they're past that they've already had a relationship with a, guy, a, a what i call a PGA a professional golfing advisor. Um, and so they, they appreciate the honesty and the authenticity. So that's what we've done. And I think you're seeing a lot of uh, financial firms trying to mm-hmm. do that to varying degrees of success. But that's where things are going. Pete, Look, all things being equal, people do business with people they like. Um, okay, I think we'll just end this by giving you, since, since you
0: know, apparently – Josh Brown appearing on podcasts—it's all just part of the marketing function
1: for Ritholtz Wealth Management. Um, <laughs> Wait, I'm not g- i am g- not a paid spokesman for Slate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, the uh, the the big question, I think, that uh, many of the Slate Money listeners would have, which is just the the existential one of like, give me one reason. What is the number one main reason why it makes sense for me to? pay you money to look after my money rather than me just putting it all in a Vanguard tar- target date fund?
1: I think for a lot of people, the Vanguard target date fund makes sense. And we, we work with uh, clients across the entire spectrum. Most of what we're doing on the wealth management side is people that have a million dollars in an account or, or greater. Um, people with less than that are getting less from us because they need less. And as a result, paying less. So we, we've got people in their 20s who are fans of ours. They can open an automated account uh, with us online. They're getting a portfolio of Vanguard funds. They're getting rebalancing some tax loss harvesting. They're getting reporting, and they're paying a relatively low cost because we're not on the phone with them every day. We've also got clients with hundreds of millions of dollars. And in those situations, we are on the phone with them almost every day. And if not them, we're on the phone with their accountants, their lawyers, their estate people, um, oftentimes other members of their families. And that becomes a lot more work. And as a result, that's a higher service model. And of course, they're paying more money for that, but they're happy to. One of the things you learn about wealthy people, spend enough time around them, um, is that they are very happy to trade their money for time and very happy to trade their money for um, peace of mind. And I think having financial professionals who understand the intersection of their taxes, the the philanthropic work that they're doing, um, the effect of business issues when they own businesses, et cetera, that's worth a lot of money to people in that cohort, and they're happy to pay it so long as they're being taken care of. Um, So there's a whole spectrum of who needs what, and not every firm is addressing every part of that spectrum. And I think the, the, the job of the investor is to find someone who offers the level of service and, and, and advice they're looking for, and somebody that they trust, and somebody that's not going to disappear when you run into a year like 2022, someone that's going to be there when they're really needed.
3: Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced.
1: I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, at my computer. And I, I got people fracturing me. I got this and that. But I'm safe.
3: And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We should have a numbers round to top this thing off um elizabeth did you ring a number
3: yes so my number has to do with a toxic social media platform that elon Musk does not own
1: we call it the bird uh, site a- <laughs> on on mastodon they don't say twitter they say the bird site
3: <laughs> the site that shall not be named uh but this is actually about tiktok and my number is 30 and there was a report that came out today uh in the times that says Thirteen-year-olds uh, on the platform are exposed to content about eating disorders and self-harm within 30 minutes of joining, on average, and then they get recommended something like 39 related, you know, TikToks. That's orientation. Sort of terrifying. <laughs> yep, that's a. The algorithms are going to kill us. That's that's my conclusion. Mm. Emily,
2: continuing a theme of the year for me on Slate Money. My number is $2.5 That is the starting price for a submersible that you can buy from Triton Submarines, which is a submarine company now co-owned by none other than James Cameron, who has a big movie coming out or has a big movie out when you hear this podcast, and Ray Dalio, who's a billionaire, hedge fund founder, blah, blah, blah. The submarines you can buy from this company go as high as $40 million dollars And apparently rich people are now not just buying yachts, as we've discussed a lot on the podcast this year. They are also buying these submarines, according to the Financial Times article I read. They're also buying these submarines because um, there's been a seismic shift in yachting, according to the piece I read. And yachts, you know, it's not all about opulence now. It's about having a submarine so you can yacht, you can sip your cocktail, and then you can go down. The, into the deep and explore as well.
1: That's like a sen- it's like a sensory deprivation thing, right? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I um, guess.
2: It sounds awful to me, just it's, being it's, all the way underwater. Yeah, I'm going pa- to Cram- pass. Bow- I'm No, I, I didn't even like the yacht idea to begin with. Uh, <laughs> the submersible is just making it worse.
0: Um, I, I thought I would bring a, a markets number um, for our markets episode. So my number is 11.5 which is the P-E ratio of Meta, a.k.a. Facebook. Um, This is a stock that back on, I'm looking at this up, August 2020 was trading at 37 times earnings. And then it fell, um, like, last month in November, it was down to as low as 8.5 times earnings. Like, we know that, um, you know, Meta stock is down, but it's absolutely astonishing to me how cheap it is given how much money it's making and it's just like because the yeah the the um the markets are just convinced that Mark Zuckerberg is going to light it all on fire and his weird quest to conquer this you know avatar legless social thing that is never going to happen
1: there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there but i think what that demonstrates is that Uh, people are less willing to endure the volatility of meta. So the multiple on those earnings comes down, even if the earnings don't come down themselves, but the earnings are coming down and the expected earnings, more importantly, are coming down. People have less faith that the platform will be as monetizable as it's been. Part of that is because of a change in terms of service on Apple's iOS. It's limiting the amount of data that Facebook can suck out of the users. Part of that is political in Europe They are done playing games with American tech platforms and allowing them to uh, extract data the way they have. And then part of that is this experiment with the legless metaverse um, where he wants to light $10 billion on fire for 10 years before there's any return on investment. And that's a $100 billion investment that no one is convinced is going to yield anything even close in the way of profits at any point, anytime soon. So that's how you get a stock lose uh, lose seventy percent of its valuation in a, in a year.
2: <laughs> I don't know. I think virtual reality has legs. I think I think it could be something. All the, the-
1: <laughs> Look at that! Look what you did! Well, well, well done, Emily.
2: <laughs> yeah, you
0: you, you you can be our techno you can be our techno optimist next year in twenty twenty three. Well, I'm just
2: saying the, all the kids I know, the teens, they are into VR and VR headsets and VR gaming. So I, I, I don't know.
0: Um, Josh, do you have a favorite number you can share? I have a
1: great number and I'm going to take this, pod- this podcast out on a positive note because that's- Thank you. That's what I do. Okay, here's the number, 91% or 91 is my number. So it's, so th- I think this is what people are wondering right now. We've just been through a horrific year for investors and if the S&P were to close where it is right now, I think it'd be down about 12% on the year which doesn't sound terrible, but I promise you the average stock is not down 12%. The median stock is probably down like 40%. It's been that bad. Um, But here's the good news. Historically, how likely is it for stocks to go down two years in a row? It turns out it's possible, but it is historically a very low probability. The higher probability bet is that stocks have a positive year of And I'm not even saying the magnitude of how positive, but just a positive year uh, after a year like this.
0: So there's a 91% chance, historically speaking, that stocks are going to go up in 2023.
1: Felix, since – Emily, (laughs) since 1928, the S&P 500 (laughs) is up roughly 55% of the time following a year that preceded it with a gain. So that makes sense when you consider the market is up three out of every four years on average the stock market has been down following an up year 18% of the time. It was also up 18% of the time following a down year. So that leaves just 9% of the time when stocks were down one year and then down the next year for back-to-back consecutive losses, meaning 91% of the time, that's not what happens. Um, To think that because this year was bad, 2023 has to be bad also, that kind of recency bias I think is what gets you in trouble as an investor. You should have an open mind about the fact that uh, as bad as things are now, sure, they could get worse, but historically, they don't.
0: Okay, so let me just finish off with with the obvious follow-up question. Um, Going back to what we said at the beginning about the stock market is not the economy. Um, If there is a recession in 2023, which a lot of people think there will be.
1: I I think um, there will
0: be. Um,
1: does that change anything? Does that make it more likely that stocks will go down? No, because stocks often trade uh, the the way they have this year in anticipation of a recession. And the thing about recessions is we don't find out that we're officially in one until we're more than halfway through. So the official recession call, if and when it comes, it will have already been obvious to all of us that it started a, a long time ago and in the midst of the recession when you're getting that notification the seeds are already being planted for the recovery so i would not use is there going to be a recession in 2023 as a reason to invest or not invest Josh Brown thanks for coming on the show it's been awesome having you I really i really appreciate it you guys are great thank you so much for having me And yeah and so
0: we'll we'll be back um next week with a slightly less Long Island version of Slate Money but other than that thanks to thanks to everyone for listening thanks to Anna Phillips for producing and we'll be back next week